Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. As you can tell by the name, we are rereading our favorite books, the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. You're with Mike and Ian. And Ian, would you kind of bring us up to speed here as we get towards the end of 13 Gun Salute? It will be my absolute pleasure, Mike. Last time, Mike, Stephen returned from Kumai from the temple up in the mountains to find in the Sultan's household Abdul arrested, Ledwood and Ray in the wind, Abdul peppered. Mm. And now Ledwood has started assassinating people. Jack had been spying on the French ship and met his old friend. Stephen had brought the bodies of, get this, Ray and Ledwood to Van Buren to dissect. And Almost incidentally, they'd learned that England was about to get its treaty and Fox is about to get his big career step here. After the treaty signing, Fox and his retinue, the old buggers, had showed their true, very unappetizing colours at dinner. And in a bit of a state of discontent, the Diane had sailed to meet the Enterprise and take the envoy to Batavia. This time, Mike, the Diane heads for her rendezvous with the surprise with Envoy Fox and his suite trying to get Jack to make all possible haste back to England. As a result, there are strained relations. And furthermore, there's a tromba marina, a gunroom dinner, time in the rigging, the articles of war, coronation day, which is timely for those of us who are listening in real time here, and a clumsy Stephen all followed up with trouble at sea. Mike, we've got once again quite the episode this week. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, it starts off not not quite that exciting. You know, it says that the Diane has not gone very far before the old pattern of sea life sets in. And we're so used to this in the canon, right? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, as, as we're joining our hearers, there's this magnificent display of canvas spread, but she barely has steerage way. And, and even at the best of times, Rayleigh is exceeding five knots here. You know, Jack's kind of done everything he knows to do. And he knows from his years at sea that, you know, railing at the weather only spoils your appetite. And today he knows it's him, Stephen, alone for dinner with some fresh fish that's just been caught. So he's not going to not going to ruin that appetite. And Stephen now comes up on deck and he's asking Jack, you know, what is it you wanted me to see? And Jack takes him kind of smiling to himself, walks him down the ship a little bit. The crew is all standing around, kind of watching quietly and thinking, you know, that Stephen's going to be stunned, amazed, taken aback, all standing. You know, they're thinking how exciting this is. And Jack, he points up above the topsail yard and, uh, you know, against the trestle trees. And he asks Stephen if he's ever seen that before. And Stephen, <laughs> a, a little bit further away from standing all of X, says, that thing like a tablecloth pulled out at one corner? <laughs> um, oh, Stephen, o- you Philistine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As O'Brien says, he can be sadly disappointing on occasion. And then finally, Jack, you know, I think with the whole crew and Jack Leo there, says, you know, tells him it's a mizzen top gallant stasel, and he can tell his grandchildren that he's seen one. Stephen, still a lover still a lover god bless him right right Stephen and me both so and 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 maybe this is a moment when jack is kind of missing old pullings jack is kind of missing a proper seaman like companion he's got the offices he's got the gun room but oh wouldn't it be great if there's somebody who knew the value of a top gallant stasel so 
Stephen asks Jack if meeting Tom Pullings at the False Natunas and then taking Fox onto Java isn't a strangely roundabout way to go. And Jack reports that Fox had said almost the same thing. And Jack says he told Fox that the prevailing winds um, and making their rendezvous, this this is the way to go. A quick look at canonade.net, Tom Horn's website, suggests that actually Stephen and Fox might have been in the right of it. But clearly, the captain is the captain. And the captain wants to meet with Tom. So that's the way that we're headed. Stephen is also fine with that. Wonders if there's a convenient harbour at these islands called the Natunas and wonders why they are known as the false Natunas. Are, are the inhabitants, he wonders, unusually treacherous? And Jack <laughs> says, well, there's no harbour. There are only barren rocks. They're going to be cruising a little bit south of their due latitude because this this being the days of inaccurate chronometers, they haven't got a good longitude fix as things stand. So, And they'll be doing that rather than docking and waiting for the surprise. And Jack goes on and explains that these Natunas, these false Natunas, were given their name by a Dutch captain yeah. who made what he thought was a great landfall in the fog at the true Natunas, only to find that he was off in his dead reckoning. And first little bit of foreshadowing for this chapter, we learn that the South Seas are full of imperfectly fixed places, places mistaken for each other, reefs and shoals. These tracks are mostly uncharted. And Stephen even is surprised to learn how little we know about these waters. He says he can see many other sailing craft, these little local native craft, the junks, the proas, perhaps fishermen, perhaps pirates. And you've got to wonder if this is another bit of foreboding or not. Jack says, well, they could be both, depending on what he calls what the occasion offers here. Yeah, and, and Stephen's kind of curious. Uh, well, first he makes a, a little reference about how you know, kind of we used to do that. This this pirates or <laughs> or merchants, depending on what the occasion offers, referring back to kind of in, uh, the island's early days here. But then he says, well, you know, all these ships that I see out here sailing, they're all from the literate cultures, and why in the world aren't they keeping records of the treacherous waters like we do? And Jack mm-hmm. says, well. You know, junks are flat. You know, they these waters aren't treacherous for them. Now the Diane is is you know at least fourteen feet deep, and Jack prefers four fathoms of water under her in smooth weather. Yeah, um, yeah. Now he realizes that they're having this conversation in what he calls the sounding box of his divided cabin. So he <laughs> gives Stephen a very significant look. O'Brien tells us, and he says that he intends to explain sailing in uncharted waters elsewhere. <laughs> I think he's kind of saying this loudly so that Fox will hear him through the wall here, right? Because, you know, Fox, uh, as, as we've been alluding to, Fox is saying, you know, I really want to get home quickly. Jack has his own agenda. And even that agenda aside, you know, you, you got to be a little careful. Now, it was interesting when they were on their way here and Jack says, you know, to Fox's question about why are we stopping? Well, you know, we have Caesar and Caesar's representative and we can't risk him. And you know, Fox is yeah. a great compliment. Yeah, none of that's playing in Fox's mind now here. Oh, there's going to be a whole series of very, very gentle, but actually really when you build them up, awkward misunderstandings on Fox's part of just how, in what level of esteem he's held by the rest of the crew. And this this Caesar one, I think, is the first of many. Mike, the, to, to come back to the foreboding, we've also got a whole series of foreboding messages. It, it turns out not just in this chapter, reaching back all the way in the book, not only to references to shoal waters, but also to the moon. So I'm going to say this now because we're going to hear some more references to the moon as we keep going through the chapter. 
we've got navigation hazards. We've got Fox, who is impatient to get on. All the way back at the beginning of the book, though, we've had references to the moon. Way back when they were chasing a ship up the Firth of Clyde. We've had phases of the moon. We've had moon rises and moon sets. We've had the moons of Jupiter. We've had the timings of the Sultan's hunting expedition due back at the change of the moon. In the last chapter, we had Stephen and Van Buren dissecting under an almost full moon, a gibbous full moon. And the French frigate stuck in the creek, timing when the next springtide might be, influenced by the moon. And Mike, I, I had never noticed this in previous readings of the book, but you know, slowing down and paying even more attention, O'Brien's been feeding us lines about the moon at a prodigious rate all the way through this book. It's really, really striking. We're building up to something having a, a big impact on the story that has to do with the moon. Uh, I, I, I wonder what it can be. Let's yeah, see. yeah, it it <laughs> clearly is coming, and and now that we're kind of all paying attention, watch how often <laughs> it comes. So yeah. you know, and, and they're sitting there, they're talking, they're you know, they've moved on to dinner now. They're in the cabin here. Um, you know, Stevens glanced at his perfectly neatly dissected bones on his plate. He looks at Jack's messy plate, and and he mentions, you know, you have to be a papist to eat fish here. <laughs> I think this is kind of a quick aside. And then he turns back to Jack's interest saying, you know, how do you arrange a private meeting at sea half a world away? And now Jack's, you know, this is much better than whether he's eating his fish nicely or not. Jack says, well, you can't be precise. So you usually work out three or four cruising grounds with different agreed timing, ideally near an island where messages can be left. Now, he says, if they miss the surprise this time, they have three more chances each side of the next two full moons. So here we here we go already, a residence here. Yeah. And then ultimately in the harbor in New South Wales. So, you know, we've got these things. We'll be approximate. We'll kind of sail around looking for each other. We'll leave messages. And then if none of those work, we'll, we'll go a ways off to the best harbor we have, New South Wales. But then all of a sudden, Stephen noticed that Jack looks sort of funny. I think Jack has has heard something or something come back to mind for Jack here. Yeah. And Stephen says, what, you know, where are you going? You, know, you look like you need to flog somebody. And then Jack asks Killick to run along and ask if Fox can see him in, in the next 30 minutes. Jack leaves. He says he'll be back in five minutes, but he's not. So Stephen's sitting there thinking. He, he knows Jack's going off to see Fox. He knows the crew's dislike of Fox has risen to a much higher level given the way he treated all of them after the victory. You know, all of his guys got to, you know, drink and party, nothing for the ship, no acknowledgement, nothing. Well, it turns out that last night, and Stephen knew about this, I, I think he was hoping that Jack wasn't going to act on it right away. In the dark, someone from the mission had come on board. They were in the midst of changing, you know, the ship tacking or wearing, I, I can't remember. And and this person, you know, goes over to he's heading for Warren, who's got the you know, the watch. Reed intercepts him. He knocks Reed out of the way. And then he just rails at Warren to make more sail, tells him that the captain would want it for the king's service and to stop dawdling away all this precious time. And Stephen knows this is a very grave offense in naval eyes. But he kind of hoped that, you know, Jack would wait until Fox kind of got over his overexcitement to address it. But he realizes that you know Fox is not getting any less excited and yeah. that they really can't have a recurrence of that. So I guess Jack needs to address it now. And as he's thinking about all this, he hears these really angry voices coming through the, you know, from the other end of the bulkhead. 
and and he kind of drifts off. Uh, you know, he's, he's sort of semi dreaming as he's waiting for Jack to come back, and he has this kind of dream of this ill conditioned man, somebody who comes in this eating house. Stephen's sitting there. Uh, the man seems to resent feeling so conspicuous, but he makes it worse by his own behavior. He, he's really hostile and defiant the way he orders and eats. And, and when he kind of wakes up, Stephen thinks, well, if this is my inner man trying to give me an analogy, he left out Fox's, what O'Brien calls, essential factor of triumph and intense excitement. But he did get right. Fox is going to great lengths to be sure that he's loathed by everybody. It's amazing, isn't it? A complete lack of self-awareness by Fox. You know, right. It, it's taken Stephen and Jack 12 books to get to this current level of self-awareness and maturity and perspective. And clearly, here's somebody who has not got any of that at all. Right. Um, and Stephen's reflecting on this downturn in the character of Fox. We've been speculating about that ever since he first sat down to dinner with them in a club in London way back at the beginning of the book. Stephen remembers how Fox had appreciated everything that Stephen had done in the negotiation. He remembers Fox's gratitude for Stephen securing the treaty and taking care of Legwood and Ray, but notices it to himself that after the victory, Fox hadn't mentioned in public Stephen's role, not because of discretion, but so that Fox alone was going to get credit for the victory. And I, I don't know whether he would have been a sore loser or not. He's certainly a sore winner, mm. is our man Fox here. Previously, Fox had been willing to apologize for the conduct of the old buggers, but now he's reveling in this real fawning flattery and the, the pleasure of their company. Fox really believes that he deserves all this flattery, and he believes that he's going to get the, the knighthood that he craves, perhaps even a governorship, so he wants to get back to England as soon as he can to collect them. And Stephen wonders then whether Fox's fundamental flaws had always been there, and Stephen had just missed them. I think we're wondering the same, Mike. Some of his genuine, apparently genuine decency look like, like sincere to us, but the, the true colors appear to be out here. Stephen's pondering on this divided character. He's wondering if there's some kind of psychological or psychiatric basis to it. He wishes he could consult his friend, Dr. Willis, an expert in disorders of the mind, and tells this out loud to Jack when Jack returns. Now, Jack had said that the visit with Fox had indeed been disagreeable, hence the raised voices. He didn't think, however, that the incident was going to be repeated. And Mike, this early in the chapter, we're with Mike hoping, but not expecting that to be so. Right. Jack really hates having bad blood, having disagreement aboard the ship. But in this case, it can't be helped. He's going to be glad to be rid of this mission after their few weeks of cruising, after meeting the surprise and making their quick trip to Batavia. Stephen, meanwhile, he's but very nicely slotting back into our thought line here, Mike, a few bits of narrative that were present right at the beginning of the book. Stephen hopes there will be news from home, wants to hear about the banks. Jack says, I want to hear about the rumor of banks breaking. I want to hear that it's not true. And Stephen says, I've even grown tearful thinking about his daughter. And Jack says, well, that, that'll soon get put right by a few months of roaring, bawling and swaddling clothes. You have to be a woman to bear babies says Jack, with unusual biological you know, perception there. Um, so I have always understood, replies Stephen. And, oh, very well, Dr. Humorous Droll, says Jack. So th these two are absolutely at ease in each other's company, right. straying dangerously near to gender role stereotyping, but I, I think we'll stay clear of that Lee Shore. And um, these two are, meanwhile, happy in their own company, right, Mike? Right, right. And they continue later. I, I can't remember if this is later or the next morning, but but they're out on Stephen's skiff. Jack's floating in the water. 
says, you know, I think I'm going to invite Fox and the mission to a fabulous dinner the day after next to repay them for that feast that Fox gave us after the treaty was signed. And, and I think this is clearly Jack, you know, I, I've got to get back to a happy ship here. And, and Stephen warns Jack to be really careful with Fox. He says, you know, Fox is a very revengeful man. And when he gets home, at least for a short while, he's going to have the ear of some very important people and he could do Jack's career harm. And Jack says, no, no, no. You know, I've been I've, I've been around too long. I've heard about too many post captains, you know, kind of ruining themselves. You know, he's not going to fly out even under provocation. And, and I think, boy, I'm, I'm I'm kind of gripping the sides of my chair here. Going, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've seen how that's worked out in the past here. But um, and then they're rowing back. And Stephen, you know, asked Jack, you know, was he much of a Greek scholar? Does he remember much of his Greek? And Stephen says, you know, I didn't get but so far, but I remember getting to the Greek concept of, as Patrick Tall calls it, and, and O'Brien writes it, hybris, or what we would say, I think, hubris. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this this an idea of, of excessive pride, and to the Greeks back then, it's kind of, you know, pride in defiance of the gods here. This this where we get the this you know kind of idea of pride goes before a fall. And I love the way O'Brien brings this up. You know, I'm thinking. You know, why why give it this context? But in fact, this is not a common term until the 1900s. So, in fact, this would be something Stephen would find back in his Greek grammar and there. But, um, you know, Stephen's explaining it and he says, open, unguarded triumph, says Stephen. And Jack says, nothing more unlucky. And, you know, we think how many times in the canon have we done this? You know, like, oh, I think we'll take them. No, no, whoa, grab a blade, opinion. I'm not going to say that. You know, I'm not going to write. not going to claim that victory until after it's ours here. So they're talking about this. Stephen is rowing and they're, they're so involved that Stephen rows right into the Diane. <laughs> I'm not quite sure, you know, the juxtaposition of this conversation and this incident here. Stephen yeah. and the oars are all knocked into the bottom of the boat. You know, Jack's back on the boat, but he's naked. So, you know, some of the young gentlemen scramble down, help recover Stephen and the oars, and then they form a line so that none of the envoy suite can kind of eye Jack. They're, they're naked captain as he comes on board here. <laughs> Well, we've we've got some signs now of normal shipboard life afloat returning here. We have a great gun exercise. The first one since the Sultan's visit that night, a couple of chapters ago. The great gun exercise goes well. Jack asks Killick to make preparations for a very fancy dinner. And maybe here's a little bit of hubris. Jack's thinking, okay, we're going to flex our our, our lavish lifestyle a little bit. He's going to turn out the best silver, the best dishes. He says to Killick to get the sherry and claret over the side, cooling immediately. What is it? I think a day and a half before the dinner's right. due. Jemmy Ducks, the keeper of the poultry, arranges to prepare a large turtle because in the Navy, turtles come under the heading of poultry, which is great. James Albright and Linnaeus would have fun with that bit of systematic biology, but anyway. Really? Um, the captain's cook starts preparing his best dishes. This is going to be a really fancy dinner. So, since they aren't playing music for fear of upsetting the mission, Jack invites Stephen to play cards. And we all know what happens then. Uh, Stephen is Mr. Card Shop. He usually, and also on this occasion, beats Jack handily since his cards are always luckier. This is one nice little exception to the rule that Jack is lucky, Jack, when cards are in his hand. Stephen is normally lucky, Stephen. And he goes on to invoke luck a little bit. Another tiny, tiny little glimpse of hubris here for Stephen. 
If only we are granted a certain amount of luck, I should hate to waste it in trivialities like cards. Jack makes a Jack joke. I might be between the the invitations to dinner and they're sitting in the cabin and the cards and the jokes. It sounds like all is well with our heroes. I, I love this reference to a pugil. It's a shame, he says, to fritter away so much as a pugil. We learn that that is the amount that can be picked up between a thumb and a forefinger, like with dried herbs. And uh, Stephen mentions this in the context of uh, Jesuit's bark and Jack coming in with the Jack joke. He says, I've always heard that a Jesuit's bark is worse than his bite. Cue crickets and tumbleweed from Stephen. An absolute hilarity from Jack. Right. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, Edwards, Fox's secretary, you know, comes comes to visit them and, and he appears extremely unhappy. And he's having to convey Fox's request to diminish the noise on the forecastle. It's it's according to Fox disturbing his work, you know. And I'm I'm kind of amazed to know what, what it is that Fox and the mission are doing day and night now. What what work they're doing? But um, and, and Jack knows that hey, it's it's the last dog watch. The sailors have all been okayed to dance and sing. They even got a you know they have a piper there with them, which is telling them this is official. And and you know so. You know, this is this is part again this uh, effect that Fox is having on the crew here, and tonight Jack remembers that Simmons is playing a tromba marina, and and you know I got to ask you about this. This is an instrument <laughs> unknown to me, you know, and, and, and quite fascinating. Yeah, and to be honest, unknown to me, I it was another one of these things that on previous readings I just kind of read past it, thinking, oh yeah, that must be a must be a, a thing or other. Anyway, you dig into it, and it's a very, very odd instrument. Um, it's constructed a little bit like a double bass, or you may say a cello, in that it involves a ho- hollow box with a string stretched over it. It's played with a bow, and the fingers aren't uh, aren't pressed onto the strings to stop the strings. It's played using harmonics, so it can only play notes in the harmonic series, just like a trumpet can. And it has this very odd asymmetric bridge that the string goes over. The string goes over one side of the bridge and the it's balanced so that the other side of the bridge is free to buzz on the belly of the instrument. And that buzzing noise means that it makes this harsh trumpet or trombone-like sound. Now, it's called in some languages a nun's violin because it sounds like a trumpet, but nuns aren't allowed to play trumpets. So this is a thing that nuns are allowed to play. It's also said to be crafted a bit like a marine speaking trumpet. It's got this kind of triangular conical shape we'll post a video of some people reconstructing in modern materials a tromba marina the sound of it is very strange the appearance of it is very strange it's kind of it's like the dodo of the stringed instrument world it's 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 died out and it's a very very odd dead end fascinating to me i can kind of see you know O'Brien, of all the instruments he could pick in the world, picks this one, drops it yeah. in here. And I can kind of see him winking at Diana saying, yeah, nuns can't play trumpets. Yeah, let's give you a tromba marina. We'll just, we'll just throw <laughs> this in here for your, for your Easter egg delights. I just, I just love this. And, and Jack is now using this. He likes Edwards. The crew likes Edwards. The gun room likes Edwards. And Edwards hates being this messenger for Fox. So I think Jack is using this to say, oh, by the way, have you ever heard this, Edwards? The, this, and, and, and as he's talking about it, there's this, it, the, the book describes this loud, deep, brassy hoot. So as you say, it as we see in the video, this strange thing. And so he says, well, you know, you should go see this, you know. 
And um, and I think he's trying to you know kind of thank him, say it's okay. And he invites Edwards to go with Fielding up to the forecastle, and he says to Fielding, and and please ask him to cut the you know cut the merriment, diminish it by half. So hmm. really nice thing of of Jack you know being kind to Edwards. Jack rolling with the punches with Fox, not getting up with it, and a tromba marina. In, in, you know, uh, uh, what a trifecta. <laughs> yeah, what's not to like? <laughs> That's right. So Jack had thought that Edwards was bringing an answer to his dinner invitation. He was thinking that his little bit of his, his investment of some hubris in planning for a big fancy dinner to mend fences with the, with the, uh, the envoy, that that was all paying off. But... The dinner wasn't actually mentioned until well into the next day, as everyone in the ship is busy carefully scanning the horizon for the surprise. A note arrives for Jack while he's busy checking their position. He goes into his pocket. Later on, when he's certain of them being on the right parallel, Jack goes down to the cabin, reads the note, and can't believe that Fox and the mission have declined dinner because of, in air quotes here, pressure of work. Right. And Mike, anybody who's read any of the O'Brien canon up to this point knows that between gentlemen and in a declined invitation to, to dinner is a really grave snub. And Stephen can't believe that a man of Fox's education can be as gross as this. He says, were you very severe with him, Jack? And Jack says, not at all. The only time I spoke a little sharp was when he asked me whether I knew I was addressing his majesty's direct representative. And I told him that though he might represent the king by land, I represented him by sea, that under God, I was sole captain aboard. <laughs> I'm like, I, I love that Jack kind of flings this out as, yeah, obviously I corrected his misunderstanding, like it was the most natural thing in the world. But I have a feeling that claiming to be under God, the sole captain aboard might not have been the most diplomatic way to put it. Trouble might be brewing here. I couldn't agree with you more, Ian. Exactly. Well, Jack calls for Killick, and when Killick comes in, we can see that he's clearly been working nonstop. He's covered in chalk from polishing silver. He says they're only half done. He needs to get back because his mates are going to mess this up if he's not there to supervise. And then Jack calls for Fielding and says he needs to make a really awkward request. And he explains the canceled dinner, all the preparations that have already been made. And he's, he's trying to, you know, kind of sum it up. He says, you know, I, I guess I've counted my geese without laying their eggs. I, I mean, I, I killed my geese. That, that is to say. So, you know, there's this string of Aubreyisms. And he finally says, well, you know, what he's really asking is to invade the gun room tomorrow, to bring the feast with them and to dine among friends. And he, he apologizes for the left-handed invitation. Uh, Fielding is delighted to have them. Oh, yeah. Isn't it great? A, a little bit of the the the, the ancient... Fa- by, the, by this stage in many books, the fellowship in the gunroom has got a little bit tense, but it's really great that on this occasion aboard the Diane, the fellowship in the gunroom is very easygoing. And uh, this, is, this is good news, I think. Even though, as O'Brien says, it may have been a left-handed invitation, it's an unusually happy and successful one. The gunroom is looking very fine and splendid with all the decorations and the silver. This takes away the usual solemnity and stiltedness of the captain's visit they didn't need the wine to get themselves starting to talk and even the the servants the members of the crew standing behind the chairs join in and uh, well be the marine officer we learn almost as inept a teller of anecdotes or jokes as captain aubrey pulls out his best story and after his second helping of goose and his sixth helping of wine he tells it perfectly and mike i love this this is the uh the joke about the man 
who's t- <laughs> who's uh, screening a recruit for entry into the Navy, who's from Ware, W-A-R-E, the town in Hertfordshire. Uh, where are you from? Where? Yes, where? Where? And th- th- this is a immaculately reconstructed O'Brien early 19th century version of Abbott and Costello's fabulous sketch, Who's On First? Yeah, we, we've got to put that one out there. I, oh, I mean, yes. One of the best ever. You know, it this is, a, you know, it's from a 1940s movie. And, and I love that O'Brien has transported this back to the 1800s Navy. <sighs> well, this, after they've managed to get through this anecdote from Welby, who has just about managed to improvise his way through telling a new section of the story where the, the man's name becomes what, uh, at this point then, to relieve us all, land is sighted. And you remember those Natunas of a few paragraphs ago? Well, these are the false Natunas. One of the old buggers, Loder, the one who's described as the least objectionable of them, meets Stephen at the companion ladder. And he remarks that he'd heard them having a very cheerful time in the gun room. And Stephen says, yes, most agreeable, good company, great mirth, and the best dinner he's ever had at sea. And as Stephen elaborates on the dinner, we get this awkward, rather guilty-sounding response from Loder. Ah, he said, meaning by this that he regretted the turtle and the geese, that he thought Fox's refusal for his colleagues an abuse of authority, and that he for one dissociated himself from the barbarous incivility, a considerable burden for a single R, but one that bore it easily. I love that. It is great. Great writing. That's a very British uh, colour to the conversation, isn't it? To be able to be apologetic and diplomatic all in one syllable of ah. (laughs) <laughs> Stephen had noted the rest of Fox's sweet excitement uh, that it had died down and Loder says um, can I consult with you as a doctor when you have a moment I don't want to speak with the surgeon's mate and uh, they having been recently ashore Mike I wonder what this can be um, they set an appointment for the next day um, I think we're left to wonder a little bit whether what comes next is about Loder or about Fox because Stephen goes to borrow an abstract on mental derangement from the surgeon's mate this particular authority, I'm pretty clear now, he's, he's, he's asking about Fox. This particular authority doesn't offer treatment hope for Fox's condition, but notes that immoderate joy as effectually disorders the mind as anxiety and grief. So being overcome with good news can be as bad for your compass mentis as being overcome with grief. And it gives the example that more people lost their wits from getting rich from the South Seas than did losing their fortune suddenly after. And by the way, Mike, for people like Jack and Stephen in possession of some kind of a fortune, that's a little bit of foreboding as well. Right. Some treatment, says the book, may help. But Stephen thinks that it's not quite at the level of what Fox has. So, Mike, a bit of a downbeat moment there. I think it might be time for us to go and consult our medical dictionaries, see what other disorders might be affecting our minds, and perhaps gather together again in a calm state of mind after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. I hope you pulled up that claret that was cooling over the side. Had a had a oh, nice yeah. mind calming break there, and and we rejoin our heroes in the morning. And Jack asked Stephen if he'd like to come ashore in his new pinnace. 
So it turns out that while they were you know, doing all the negotiations with the Sultan, Jack had commissioned a boat, his own personal boat. Uh, and now he's going to take it out here. And he, he entices Stephen by saying, you know, I, I've, I've heard there may be a colony of nondescript boobies. Sure, Stephen is like just waking up. But the next thing you know, he's tucking his nightshirt into his breeches and going, yeah, you know, I'm your man. Let's go. <laughs> and Stephen, as they're, as they're getting the, the boat out, this new pinnace, he said, well, I hadn't noticed that it has mass. And, and the boat crew, all you know, their expressions <laughs> go blank. They completely look away. And Jack explains that, well, yes, you know, they take the mass down when they store the boat. It makes it easier to store. Bonded reports that she handles really well. And everybody is admiring, you know, she's so beautiful, this teak, smooth as a dolphin's skin. And Stephen now is, is watching, you know, he's looking forward to the flora and fauna on this, you know, undisturbed tropical rock here. Jack and some young gentlemen take a compass and tools and some paint. They're checking for a message from the surprise and they're getting ready to leave their own at the agreed location. And Stephen's saying, you know, what, what's the agreed location? And they say 22 yards north of a conspicuous rock marked with white. And Stephen says, 22 yards for all love. He's wondering where in the world. And Jack says, you know, the length of a cricket pitch. So clearly, you know, <laughs> come on, Stephen, get with the program here. That we're in, we're in a little bit of Stephen's world and a lot of Jack's world at the moment. We are, and you know, I, I love that this really carefully laid plan that Jack and Pullings have had about rendezvous and backups for rendezvous and backups for the backups, and then a rendezvous in New South Wales. This is all just part of their seamanship. They've had this series of plans. These people don't have you know, instant messenger or Twitter or cell phones. They can't mm. go. Oh yeah, I'll see you there in five minutes. So months, maybe even years ahead of time, they've got these plans for these rendezvous. They've got this really practical, but in many ways quite elaborate setup for leaving messages, slightly cryptic, slightly obscure messages behind that only they will understand, including the vital importance of the length of a cricket pitch. And nobody's drawn attention to it. We haven't had Jack restating this all the way through the book. But as soon as it becomes a topic, we go, oh, yeah, Jack, Jack and Pullings have had this taken care of for all this time. They leave then, again, according to their long agreed protocol, they leave a message in a bottle and sail back with all the Stephen specimens after Jack hurries him so that they won't miss their tide. Another little drumbeat of a mention of tides and moons there. Right. Stephen tells Jack about all these great natural wonders that he's found, how he's looking forward to sharing them with Martin, and they both hope they'll see him soon. Ah, oh, Mike, so much hope. So much anticipation in this chapter. Right. I, I love it. It's all so optimistic. Um, later on, Stephen sees Loder, the one that we call the least objectionable of the old buggers, who says, oh, I see you've been out in the new pinnace. Loder goes on and says, I've got a yacht in England and a small yawl that I sail here. And this is it by way of small talk, introducing him to the, the procedure for being checked out for whatever dose of whatever he's caught through careless choice of friends. <laughs> a short right. of Provence. Stephen examines him, says, your self-diagnosis was correct. Good news, the medicine will answer because we've caught it early and your nose isn't going to fall off and you're not going to go mad. Loder thanks him for the diagnosis, thanks him for the meds, and thanks him for the non-judgmental treatment. And he uh, makes this time-honored and very reasonable observation that there's no fool like an old fool, but he's glad not to be told so. And... Uh, I think we're, we're we're meant to admire the fact that this is a this is a fairly regular thing for Stephen, and admire the fact that he chooses not to charge patients. Many other uh, ship surgeons do, and 
wondering as Loda does when they're going to be in Batavia, Stephen says, well, I'll tell you what I know, but if you're talking on behalf of Fox and Fox really wants to know with certainty, he should ask the captain. And of course, Mike, we, we've had this before. Members of Fox's retinue try and kind of find polite back channels to get around Fox having to go talk to Jack, but that's not going to wash on this occasion. No, no. And O'Brien tells us, you know, Fox does not ask the captain. He and Jack continue to be appropriately civil to one another the way they were kind of coming out. And Fox gathers whatever information he can from Loader, from Edwards, you know, uh, and Edwards' conversations with the gunroom members, you know, and, and the gunroom, as we've said, you know, they still think highly of Edwards. And they're continuing to just sail back and forth on this true parallel slightly south of this island. And, and there's no sight of surprise, even though from the top of their sails, they can see 15 miles in every direction. So she's, you know, she's just not on the horizon anywhere. Well, Loder comes uh, later to be dosed by Stephen again. Um, and he asks Stephen about Jack. And Stephen confirms that, yes, Jack is rich. Yes, Jack is a member of parliament. Mm. Yes, Jack is very well with the ministry. And so we're not getting the context here, but it sounds like Fox is trying to decide how far he should push the, his desire to sail as fast, fast as possible. You know, how much of a thumb he can put on Aubrey here. And Stephen also says more loudly that, no, he will not act as a go-between between Fox and Jack. Again, points him to say, you know, if Fox wants to talk to Jack, talk to Jack, talk to the captain here. It's great. And we never get insight at this moment into what Stephen thinks about all this, although we can pretty clearly guess. There have been plenty of occasions in the past when we've learned that Stephen really hates this. It really hates being used as any kind of a kind of an, an agent, if you like, in the social sense. Right. Uh, and he's very, very short shrift given back to load of this and go get Fox to go talk to Jack on his own basis. Jack, meanwhile, invites Stephen up into the tops, up into the heights of the rigging. Uh, to see these false Natunas again. And Stephen says, almost truthfully, nothing would give me greater pleasure. But he thinks how he hates heights, especially on those swinging rope ladders, what he calls more suitable for apes than rational beings. And that sets him off into a bit of a reverie. He realizes this distinction between apes and rational beings is unsound. Muong was an ape. Muong, although slow-witted at times and occasionally stubborn, was a rational being. Mm. And again, Stephen's very, very struck by the closeness of the rapport that he got with meeting Muong the orangutan. Right. And it's not, it's not leaving him. It's still with him here. There's no answering flag on the island as they're back visiting it for a second time. Um, nor is there on Friday when they sail back past again. And Stephen notes how there are no ships or small craft out at all. The ocean seems strangely deserted, even of seabirds. Mm, I wonder why that could be. Yeah. It, you know, again, we're going to get this gentle, quiet cadence just building yeah, up here, yeah, right? Yeah. Isn't it? Right. Isn't it? Well, on board, Stephen continues to notice, you know, as, as he looks at the people in Fox's suite, this increasing lack of enthusiasm, there's less deference, there's less toadyism towards Fox. But Fox's enthusiasm remains undiminished. You know, he he uh, kind of walks uh, up to Matron and invites him for a game of backgammon the next day. And when they're playing on Saturday, Fox is clearly distracted. He loses a very easily winnable game. And, you know, just as pressing the point of telling Stephen how eager he is to get home as quickly as possible. But when he goes to explain why, under Stephen's kind of cool and informed eye, Fox just can't think of any of the good reasons that he had, 
you know, these these highly political and strategic ones that he had recited to Loder earlier in preparation for this conversation with Stephen. And he'd like to know what Captain Aubrey has in mind. And Stephen says, if you ask him, he'll tell you. Mm. And Fox says he does not choose to risk a snub. And boy, you know, how many times have we seen this? You know, this is, yeah. And then Fox goes on to explain, uh, and O'Brien writes, he spoke to me in a most intemperate manner the other day, enlarging upon the powers of the captain of a man of war, his yeah, unaccountability <laughs> yeah, to any but his own superiors in the service, and his complete autonomy afloat, an absolute monarch. He spoke with a masterful, domineering authority and a dislike that shocked me extremely. And this was not the first example of ill will by any means, an ill will that I find absolutely incomprehensible and gratuitous. <laughs> well, Stephen, you know, Stephen disagrees, right? He, he's, 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 you know, he's, he's yeah. said, tries to set Fox straight here. He says, let, let me put you right. There's no ill will on Jack's part. Again, Jack's turn of phrase, he might have regarded as just cheerful, regular, direct speaking. Fox regarded it as a personal snub. Again, not the only, not the first, and by no means the last misunderstanding between Fox and the Navy here. Uh, Fox asked then why Aubrey had snubbed him by not having the ship dressed with flags and the sailors standing on the mast cheering when Fox had embarked with the signed treaty. Surely, he says, this must have been ill will. Surely, I think, Mr. Fox, you're not that self-regarding and vain and stupid. But guess what? It turns out he really is. Stephen explains that this manning of the ship and dressing overall only occurs when a member of the royal family visits or for an officer who has won a military, not diplomatic, victory. Fox is staggered for a minute, but he then decides, oh yeah, okay, I've seen through you. He thinks that he spies another truth behind Stephen's words. He says, ah, you're obliged to support your friend, of course. And of course, your motives are quite clear. There is no more to be said. And he bows and walks off. I might, if I'd been there, I'd be chasing him and slapping upside the head. Right. What a self-regarding, pompous idiot. So, Stephen has failed to find his opportunity. He's failed to join the persecuted Fox fan club <laughs> and has probably been added to Fox's, uh, what, what old friends of mine might call Fox's shit list. He's on right. Fox's imagined list of enemies and detractors here. Stephen finds this so irritating, having managed to avoid, in my mind at least, managed to avoid actually clubbing Fox about the head. Stephen takes care of his irritation by climbing the rigging and uh, does it without thinking. Uh, He does it with Jack. Jack is about to compliment him on how he's climbing like a human being, but changes it to like an able seaman at the last minute. And they look out and they see nothing. We heard this a couple of paragraphs ago and it's repeated here. We're meant to notice this. Nothing, no ships, no birds, and also, by the way, no flag on the island. And back on deck, Fielding asks about rigging church the next day. Knowing that it's a Sunday, I think Fielding's wondering what kind of a sermon, what kind of a divine service, what kind of thanksgiving might be offered. And Jack says, I want to stay with the Articles of War. It's Coronation Day, he thinks, and therefore, you know, what we need to do is go back to the authority of the crown, and that means the Articles of War. Um, not for him, prayer and celebration and worship. Uh, it's going to be about reminding yourselves about the rules of the house. In the morning then, Jack is standing in front of this folding board, this kind of sandwich board affair that lists the articles. Two precautions, he says to himself, are better than one, and reads them out after he's inspected everyone dressed there in their Sunday best. And again, Mike, we've had this before. The strong tone of voice, the authority and the might, 
of the Articles of War read aloud by Captain Aubrey. The deep, powerful voice of Jack complementing what O'Brien calls the Old Testament-like force of the rules themselves. Stephen thinks that Jack might have had a hint of emphasis in emphasising Article 23 about reproaching, provoking speeches, quarrels and disturbances, and also Article 26 about stranding or running ships on rocks or sand through willfulness or negligence and that being punishable by death. These are clearly messages he thinks that Jack wants to send to Fox. But Jack does not choose to emphasise the 29th article of war about the punishable by death offence of sodomy and buggery, even though some of the crew, especially those who had rowed Mr Fox back and forth to shore, had coughed or looked pointedly at each other. This confirms then what Stephen had told Fox. Jack is not harbouring ill will. He's not dropping coded messages about his antipathy towards Fox. If he was, he'd be prompting this Article 29 thing and egging the crew along. But neither of these things are part of Jack's real character or his real agenda here. Well, Jack finishes you know, the articles. He orders all the hands to face starboard. And Fox and his sweet watch as the royal salute booms out from the cannons. And as the smoke is clearing, Fox stands up, bows left and right, and says to Fielding, I thank you for a very handsome compliment, sir. Oh, no, sir, says Fielding. I, I, I must beg your pardon, but, but no thanks are due. It was in no way personal. All ships of the Royal Navy fire a royal salute on Coronation Day. Now, somebody laughs out loud. Fox looks furious and storms off to the companion ladder. Oh, my God, Mike, this is so awkward. Fox is so hard fishing for some sign of esteem. And each time, entirely accidentally, he realizes he ain't got it. He's got, he's right. got no kind of esteem from the crew at all. On the quarterdeck, Jack tells Stephen that Tom would have just fired the same salute somewhere. And, and he knows that if the surprise hears that, he's going to come tearing down to find them. And everybody in the crew knows this, that you know nothing brings a man of war over the horizon faster than the sound of cannon fire, even when it's really remote. So everybody is really on the lookout here. And before Jack's dinner guests arrive, the mainmast lookout says, you know, thinks he sees a sail or something like it on the horizon. Well, Jack asked Stephen to entertain Blythe and Dick Richardson, who are coming for dinner, and it, he, you know, he runs up to take a look. Richardson you know, passes him and asks if he can go along. And up there, Richardson and Jack really can't see anything from the masthead looking post. Now, the Diane was built with royal masts, which you know, allow her to set her true royals and true skysails above them. But this royal mass is six inches across at its thickest here. So, you know, the top gallant mask isn't much more and the shrouds and stays are also pretty frail. Now, Jack decides he's going to take his 17 stone up in him and Richardson is terrified. And he asks Jack to let him go, you know, and Jack says, no. And Richardson says, I'm only nine stone. And Jack says, bah, and tells him to stop leaping around like a baboon or he'll ring the mask. So Richardson's <laughs> you know, there with his hands clasped like in prayer, and he watches Jack go up this meager spider's web, as he calls it, as the ship is just rolling and pitching, you know, adding to the physics of the force of Jack's weight up there. Jack has his arm hooked in the royal shrouds and says, yeah, I've spotted them. Ah, it's three sail of proas. So the word comes <laughs> back down on deck. Jack apologizes to his guest. You know, he, he says that the sails were only proas. And we hear from Al, you know, across the wall, 
Only pro ruined his Sabbath nankeens to see them and delayed the fucking poached eggs and red wine till they was fucking grape shot in horse piss. And this is like <laughs> talking to his mate. You know, Brian says it is harsh, shrewish voice, perfectly audible in the cabin. So. Oh, gotta love Killick. Gotta love Killick. We all we were all thinking it. We were all thinking it. Killick just gave tongue to what was on our minds anyway. That's right. I wish I could do it in, in Patrick Tall's voice. <laughs> he just nails his Killick voice. Well, the, the, these proers are destined to keep distracting Killick some more because they converge with the Diane's course. And as they get to gunshot range, they see that their decks are crowded with men. The purser says all they're lacking is a Jolly Roger. He's thinking this is a bunch of pirates and they're ready to board. Stephen wonders if their presence is what's swept the ocean clean. A third reminder that the seas are empty here. After assessing the Diane, however, the danger seems to pass. The proers take off at 13 or 14 knots in a moderate wind. And Mike, 13 or 14 knots is a real, real clip. The day ends then with the sun going down into the sea like a great golden ball. And guess what rises? A big old slab of foreshadowing, okay, in the person of a great golden yellow moon as full as a moon can be and we're this is written very poetically mike we we you know we're kind of there looking at this beautiful tropical twilight and the shimmering golden moon rising and we're we're, but it's there for a reason it's been there for a reason all the way through this book and we're coming up on finding out why it's there conditions are perfect even though it's not a rare sight everyone watches it in silence the captain and his officers think it must be an omen of something, but they can't agree on what it's an omen of. Oh, guys, just stick around. A couple of paragraphs you're going to find out. <laughs> right. Until they sail past the false Natunas the next day and see no flag but a large black cormorant. Big, shaggy, black-feathered seabird. Very everyday, mundane, ugly-looking seabird. Um, sitting on the conspicuous rocks with its wings outstretched. And even though Stephen says the sight of a cormorant is a common sight, Everyone is convinced that this means they're not going to see the surprise on this rendezvous. They complete their passages, they sail on until the end of their, their chosen time, and no one is surprised that the search is fruitless this time. <sighs> Jack orders them to go ahead and now steer southwest along the best course, given what little they know from all the information they had, all the old records and everything. You know, they're going to be going over uncharted territory and making for Java. And and Jack is sad and he's vexed and he's you know he's down there he's done his humble readings and he's putting away his equipments his tubes and pots and instruments but you know he kind of just leaves it for a minute and he walks into his privy. And as he's sitting there in the privy, he hears a large crash and it turns out that Stephen who'd been trying to catch a spider up by the skylight had managed to fall off a chair, broken everything made of glass, splash seawater all over Jack's record and shatters the hanging barometer as well as tearing down a sword rack in the midst of this fall. Oh, so huge fall. Yeah, yeah. All the instruments are out. Seawater's on the Humboldt readings. And, you know, this is not good. Ah, well, you know, Jack puts the cabin back into shape and then he climbs back up into the rigging and, and he realizes this time he's really feeling his weight, even though he's not gone you know, nearly as high as he had gone on Sunday. And he wonders if it's age. And, and up in the rigging, he's kind of you know locked himself in and he falls asleep. And at two bells, he wakes, he comes down 
He sends Fox a note that the ship is headed for Java and should reach her by Friday. And he's telling them he'd like the mission to begin packing now since the Diane is not going to stay in harbor long. So, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you know, we learned that, you know, it's going to be arranged so that Fox can return to England on the, you know, on the next India men going there. Because as we know, the Diane and the Surprise have a different mission here. So back in his cot, Jack starts to fall asleep and he notices the gleam of his epaulette. And he's remembering when, you know, back when he was off the list, yeah. you know, he, he had kind of woken um, after dreaming that he was still there and, and looks for his epaulette and, you know, doesn't see it. It's gone in this pain. And so now he goes to sleep and he's flooded with this deep happiness that, you know, this coat is back there now. It really is. He wakes one time. He hears Warren turning the watch over to Elliot. You know, he thinks to himself, you know, hey, Stephen's going to know all these people in Batavia. They can get new instruments. They can keep Humboldt's readings going. All is well. So he's, he's back off again. He's sleeping so good that scrubbing the decks doesn't wake him. But the keel scraping over rock and throwing him out of his cot has him at the companion ladder before the messenger running for him even gets there. Ah. Uh-huh. Well, he's giving orders immediately, is Jack. Uh, as a last shove of the waves leaves the Diane motionless on an unseen rock. They're harder ground. There's two feet in the well only, but it's rising moderately, says the carpenter. The skiff is over the side. Richardson calls from the skiff. Three fathoms of water under the stern, two and a half fathoms amidships, two fathoms under the forefoot, and no bottom at cable's length ahead. So they're on this really small, they've been so unlucky, on this really small little perch of an outcrop but it's absolutely shallow. I mean, two fathoms under the forefoot, that's, that's 12 feet. That's nowhere near their draft. They've, they've grounded hard. They dropped the best bower. They say they, they dropped their, their biggest and most stable anchor as a standard precaution so that if they do happen to get blown off again, they have an anchor to hold them if there's stormy weather. That's really just meant to reassure anyone. At this moment, I don't think Jack is actually anticipating a squall. The day seems to promise a fairly heavy sea, but a declining sea, and the sky promises fair weather, and there's a green sloping island two miles across, a mile to the north. So they're, you know, they're in range of some different kinds of territory here. By four bells, they're gaining on the water in the well, so they're pumping out successfully. The ship hasn't moved, and Jack notices this lack of movement. It feels locked solid, like it's in dry dock, and she must have struck at the last moment of springtide high water and the ebb is moving fast. And Jack says to the men at the wheel, you can leave the wheel. We're, we're not steering. We're not making way anywhere. And Mike, this is tragedy. The last moment of the highest high water of spring tide means that the water's not going to be as high again because of the phases of the moon, the moon that's been shining at us down from the sky in all of these previous chapters. The moon says there's not going to be another tide this high for at least two weeks, maybe even four weeks. So, payoff for all of that moon jeopardy that's been planted in our ears. Right. Edwards comes up with a message from Fox, you know, asking if anyone in the mission can be of any service. And, and Jack nods at a group of the, the mission servants huddled in the waist and says, yeah, you can keep them out of the way. And then he calls Stephen over before relaying the message for Fox because he wants Stephen to hear this as well. He says, we've struck an unknown, uncharted reef at high water. We are now aground. I cannot yet tell what damage the ship has suffered, 
but she is in no immediate danger. There's a strong likelihood that by lightening her, we may be able to float her off the reef at the next high tide. It may then be possible to make her seaworthy enough to take us to Batavia to be docked. In any event, we are about to lower down the boats, and it would be just as well if Mr. Fox, with all his people and as much baggage as possible, were to go ashore under a proper guard and leave us to our task. End of chapter nine. Wow. I'm thinking, yeah, too late, mate. You come along with your reasonable offer of, is there any way any of us can help? Nah, you've missed the boat there. Right. <laughs> oh. Mike, I mean, th- th- this story is not over. Well, for no. one thing, we know this is this is not the last chapter. But th- we were headed to Pullings. We were all looking ahead. There was so much anticipation. We were looking forward to Pullings and the Southern Ocean and South America. And Fox is looking forward to knighthoods and baronetcies and God knows what else. And fate in the shape of the moon has intervened. And all of that hubris is shattered and we're high and dry on a rock. A, a really interesting twist. You know, Fox trying to push them faster and faster and coming up harder ground. Jack's been trying to meet the surprise. That's going to be delayed. The Diane is perched high up on the rocks. Everything that Jack was concerned about. Uncharted waters, shallow reefs, you know, uncertain tides and currents. All of that has come true. When we kept getting this thing about the ocean being swept clean, you'd mentioned this, and we keep hearing this over and over again. And I still don't know what's going on with that. We're we're you know we're in this swept clean ocean up on a bunch of rocks. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, and the only people out afloat right now are pirates on fast moving weatherly right. ships. Right, right. <sighs> and meanwhile, Fox has got his little list. Right, he's got his list of who's who's naughty and who's nice. Who's being added to the list? Stephen speculates that he's been added to right. Fox's list. Who else has been added? What kind of message is he going to be sending back to the ministry? What's going on with the banks back home? We know that there's one more chapter to come. Yeah, one more chapter. And, and in the articles, you know, is reading, Jack has emphasized, you know, in trying to send a message to Fox about, hey, you know, if you, if you run your ship aground, that's punishable by death. But now I'm sitting there listening to that echo in my mind going, yeah, I'm not so glad. (laughs) All right, that was for Fox, but now I'm feeling it now. So I'm I'm with you. I'm wondering what in the world can happen. We know there's only one more chapter, but this is Patrick O'Brien. And anything could happen and nothing could happen. (laughs) Absolutely. In that case, Mike, what do you say to just a little bit more of Patrick O'Brien? Oh, with all my heart. temple up in the mountains to find in the sultan's household abdul arrested ledwood array <laughs> I, sam i think you're going to have a target rich environment for outtakes <laughs> both, both ian and i are coming off of quite the week here right <laughs>